Good evening, everybody. Welcome. We're going to continue our series, Evangelism for the Fainthearted. You see that on the screens behind me and on the front cover of the notes that you should have. You need the notes in order to follow along. And these are a continuation of the notes that we handed out two weeks ago. And we left off on page 20, page 20. So you should have a set of notes that have pages 17 to 21. And we left off on page 20 of those notes. And if we get through this uh, next page and a half then tonight, I've got another set of notes ready to be handed out uh, to give you as well. So thank you all for every week that we've had this series. You guys have uh, fit into these middle sections. And I'd ask you to do that the, the first week. And every week you've done that. So thanks for doing that. We did not meet uh, for this class last week uh, because it fell on Halloween, trick-or-treat. We anticipated that a number of our families that have children would be out with them trick-or-treating. And so rather than continue this series and have a bunch of you miss one of the sessions, uh, we had Dr. Combs just teach a session last week. So you didn't miss anything. We're just going to pick up tonight where we left off two weeks ago. While Dr. Combs was teaching in here, my wife and I were on the side, sitting on the sidewalk out in front of the building, passing out candy. We set up a little canopy, homely little canopy out there. My wife strung up some lights on it, and the two of us sat there with a bin of candy that was left over from Enchanted Trails. So we're trying to get rid of candy. Uh, I wasn't teaching, so I was available. And Kim and I sat out there to meet some families and give out some candy. Problem is, we're on this side of the street, and we our property goes from here all the way over to the houses way down there, 15 acres worth. So there aren't any houses here. So the kids are on the other side of the street. <clears throat> so my wife and I are, are sitting there, and as I was telling some folks earlier, you know, I would yell across and say, Hey, kid, you want some candy? <laughs> you could almost hear the mother say, stay away from him. Do not go over there. But we did coax some of them to come over. And we had so much candy we needed to get rid of, and so few. I mean, there were we met a number of families, and so we're glad we did it. But there just wasn't uh, hordes of kids on this side. So we weren't passing them out one piece or two pieces at a time. We just had the kids stick their hand in, and we said, you can take as much as you can grab. And so they got very creative. They were pinning candy against the wall of the bin and pulling it out. We had some kids who stopped back again to see if we still had candy. We did, so we gave them some more. So we had a decent time last week. It was pretty cold out there. But I'm sure you all, whoever was able to be here for Dr. Combs, enjoyed his teaching on the subject of illumination. But now we're going to continue Evangelism for the Fainthearted, and we'll pick up where we left off on page 20 in just a, a bit. Let me remind you, especially since it's been two weeks, that this series is about helping us to engage in the process of evangelism. Uh, evangelism is the process of giving the gospel. The evangel is the gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word in your New Testament for that, for gospel, and it means good news, good, good message. Evangelism is the process then of distributing, proclaiming that, that message. But we, all of us, are often faint-hearted. 
with regard to that because it can involve ridicule, can involve rejection, even outright hostility uh, toward you. Uh, you might be embarrassed if there are questions that someone has that you might not be able to answer. And so as a result of all of those things, we sometimes pull back from giving the gospel. We saw in the very first week that we're in good company if we're sometimes hesitant because the great apostle Paul was sometimes hesitant as well. When he went into the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the Lord himself appeared to Paul to buck up his courage and tell him, fear not and preach, and I have many people in the city, and so Paul did that, but he was fearful. <clears throat> uh, he even asked in Colossians chapter 4 that the Christians in the city of Colossae pray for him so that he would give the message fearlessly as he should, so that he would be without fear, which implies that there were times where he was tempted to have and succumb to such such fear. So evangelism for the faint-hearted, and how do we co- overcome the faint-heartedness? And we looked for, <clears throat> excuse me, the first three weeks at some reasons why we should overcome, be motivated to overcome this faint-heartedness. And one is because of God's purpose in evangelism. It is the means by which God brings glory to himself because it's through the gospel and the transformation that takes place in the gospel that people are changed into the image or and, and are are being changed into the image of Christ. And we saw that that was the original purpose for which God made us. He made us in his image, meaning to reflect his character back to him. But sin has marred that image in everybody so that nobody does that as they were designed to do. And God's glory is the display of his character. So God wants to be glorified. He made creatures to bring glory to him by displaying his character back to him. He made us then in his image. I used the illustration of mirrors reflecting God back to God. That's what we were designed to be. But because of sin, we are cracked mirrors, broken mirrors, foggy mirrors, so that you can still see in all of humanity some of the vestiges of what we were made to be, but not clearly. And in salvation, which comes through the message of the gospel, those mirrors are being repaired. And we spent some time looking at the beauty of the gospel and all that's accomplished in the gospel. Through the effectual call, through regeneration, through justification, through adoption, through sanctification, through glorification. All of these things are part of aspects of the good news of the gospel. And we spent that time in order to motivate us to say this message is worth it and the purpose for which this message has been given is worth it, namely the glory of God, Uh, displaying God's character in our own lives, showing the love of God in our own lives for people who need the gospel message and then seeing God's character displayed in the lives of those people who receive it. So we spent some weeks trying to help us overcome our faint-heartedness by uh, giving us reasons to be motivated to give to give the gospel. And then uh, a few weeks ago, we asked the question, to whom do we give the gospel? And we saw from Romans chapter 1 that we're going to people, and this describes all of us prior to coming to Christ, but we're going to people who know God, but because of sin don't want to know God. And as a result of suppressing the truth that they know about God, Romans chapter 1 says it renders all people foolish in the way they live, in the way they think. 
foolishness in the Bible, as you've heard me say a number of times, is not ignorance. It's not a lack of intelligence. Uh, Many highly intelligent people are fools. From a biblical standpoint, foolishness is failing to use what you've been given for the purpose that it was given. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Foolishness is failure to apply what you know. And people know God. They know God from creation. They know God from their own conscience. The, The fact that there are standards of right and wrong outside of themselves, Romans 1 and 2 teaches. So people know that, but the Bible says they hold it down, and as a result, they're rendered foolish. So those are the people that we're going to. So hopefully you're motivated to go. But now you've been reminded of what you were before you came to Christ. And what people are like, those are the people that we're going to go to, which then should raise the question, all right, I want to go. I'm willing to overcome my faint-heartedness. But that's the condition people are in. So how am I now going to relate to those people? And that's what the title of the notes you have in front of you is. How do we relate? Top of page 17. And we've been looking then at How it is that we can relate to people even though they're in the condition that that we saw a few weeks ago. And when we left off two weeks ago, last time we were together, uh, we were making the case that we need to learn to see people as Christ saw them. And from Matthew chapter 9, we saw that Christ saw people and viewed them with compassion because they were as sheep. They were harassed and helpless as sheep having no shepherd. In Isaiah chapter 61, that Jesus in Luke chapter 4 applied to himself. So a prophecy, a prediction in the first part of your Bible, Isaiah 61, that Jesus read in the synagogue, said he unrolled the scroll to the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has appointed me, anointed me to preach good news to those who are captive and to those who are... So this is Jesus' mission. And this is how Jesus saw people. So if we, having now been motivated to overcome our faint-heartedness, but knowing that the people that we're going to are really, using biblical language, dead in trespasses and sins... They know God, don't want to know God, rendered foolish as a result of suppressing what they know. How am I going to relate? Well, the first thing I got to do is see people the way that Jesus saw them. And also, two weeks ago, we were making the case, yes, we've got to see people the way that that Jesus saw them. And we also need to understand that because these people are made in God's image, that we are all made in God's image, all humanity then all of us have some things in common. That when you talk to somebody about God, they have a capacity, they have a, they have a God awareness that they suppress to be sure, but they know God. And so you have that in common. You're each made in the image of God. That includes each of you has a, an awareness of God. And further, every person in God's world lives according to uh, God's institutions, the things that God has created. And so you'll find people who don't even believe in God just unconsciously and unthinkingly using God's stuff. But that means they use God's stuff 
like we use God's stuff, and we have that in common. And one example of that is is the institution of family. I mean, where did family come from? Where did the idea of marriages and children within families, where did that come from? Well, it came from God. It came in the very beginning of human history. God is the one who instituted marriage. He presided over the first wedding. He gave away the bride himself. And I said two weeks ago that this is the reason people know this. And this is the reason that most people want to be married in a church and they want it to be presided over by a minister. They know this. So they'll invite God to the wedding, just not to the marriage. Right? But on that one day, they are borrowing, as some say, from the worldview, the, the biblical worldview. And I said in your notes uh, two weeks ago, and I say in those notes you have, that they're actually stealing from the biblical worldview. That is, they're using God's stuff for their own ends. Now, I don't say that in order to be hostile or unkind. I'm just saying that's the situation. But the good news with all of that is, it gives you entree now to have something in common with the people to whom you're going. They live in the same God-given world that you live in. They're made in the image of God as we are made in the image of God. So they have a God-awareness And so you have the opportunity now to relate the things that they are doing in their lives to the God who gave those things. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be seeing that that's one of the key ways that you start conversations with people in evangelism is to relate those things that they are already doing and already using that came from the hand of God, but to try to show them a God-centered perspective on those things. Something that they don't have now. They have a strictly self-centered and worldly-centered perspective on those things. Page 20, then. We left off at the first full paragraph there that starts with, Consider a couple that brings a child into the world without any thought of God. When that child gets to be about two or three, at some point it dawns on mom and or dad that kid's going to start asking us questions. (laughs) Because for the first several years, that child has not been educated enough to believe that they came into the world by accident. You need an education and a lot of faith to believe that. (laughs) So I'm going to have to tell this child where they came from. The kids are going to have this simple faith that's built in that says, I came from God. So mom and dad, what what about God? Where did I come where did I come from? And you find many a young parent who when they got married, they might have got married in a church by a minister, but they haven't thought about God since. Maybe they didn't grow up in church themselves, but now they've got a child and this child is starting to ask questions, and guess what? They wander into church. To say, you know, this raises some questions for me as well. Now I'm having to think about Those kinds of things. So we need to, next paragraph, see people outside of Christ as he sees them. But instead, if we're honest, what many of us do, instead of looking through eyes of compassion, we get ticked. You people are really idiots. You know that? I mean, really? You look at what's on TV. You look at what people are doing with their kids. You look at 
what other people's kids are then trying to inflict on yours. You just want to say, what is up with you? But we've got to see those who need Jesus as Jesus sees them. And two weeks ago, I went on a little bit of a rant about the political environment and why it is I'm so concerned about the way Christians present themselves in the current political environment and how gung-ho we appear to be uh, against people because people sense that and that hurts our witness then when we're associated with being against people. And so we've got to be extremely careful about that. And I would just say, friends, that as Christian people, as, as God's evangelists, as God's ambassadors, that's what the Bible calls us, as God's ambassadors representing God, we've got to care more about how Christ is perceived to people than we care about who wins the election. So just bear that in mind. You know, we just had an election last night. Bear that in mind two years from now. I'll remind you again. I'll take, I'll take the hits then, like I do sometimes now on that, but that, that ain't changing. I'm going to have to keep reminding us of that. Our reputation and Christ's reputation matters more than any political party, matters more than any particular person in office, and all of that. So we need to see people as Christ sees them. If we're going to relate to them. And then middle of page 20. See yourself in relation to them. See them as Christ sees them. Look at them with, with compassion, not with hostility. But then also see yourself as actually being related to them. Yes, there's a major difference or should be between the Christian and the non-Christian. But there are also areas of commonality as well. One obstacle that Christians who are committed to holy living often face is how to avoid being polluted by the world as we seek to witness to the world. Right? So, how am I supposed to engage with them when I'm called by God to be this and they're just the opposite? So it's safer then for me, we think, to then pull into our own isolation with just the people that are like us And then, of course, if we do that, we have absolutely zero chance of evangelizing. Perhaps I should have said this the first week, but I think we all know this, that in order to engage in the process of evangelism, it assumes you're in communication with some people who need it, right? But the truth is, many of us as Christians are not. We have withdrawn. We pulled into ourselves. So we don't see ourselves in relation to them. I understand the part of the rationale for that. It's what I said here. God calls us to be holy. And so I I don't want worldliness to rub off on me so that I fail to be holy. But the truth is, as we're going to see on the next page in just a bit, you can do both. You can be holy and you can still be around people who are not. And people who need the gospel. In other words, how can we relate to the world without being adversely affected by it? Isolation is not the answer. The Apostle Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate 
with sexually immoral people. Let me just stop there. (laughs) If you just stopped, if you just put a period there, don't associate with sexually immoral people. In Corinth, you guys remember something about Corinth? It's like everybody was sexually immoral in Corinth. And guess what? We're looking more and more like Corinth all the time. So if you just put a period there, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, okay, then we're not going to we're not going to be around those people at all. But he adds this. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. You see that? That's what the Bible says. That's what. The Apostle Paul said, and he gave that caveat, he gave that disclaimer to the Corinthians and to us to say, you as Christian people cannot condone sexual immorality among you. And so I've written to you not to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you go back and read that, there's some really heinous sexual immorality taking place within the church at Corinth. And he's writing to castigate them for that and to correct them. So I've written to you not to associate with a sexually immoral person, but he's not saying people of the world who are sexually immoral. In Corinth, they were all like that. In our day, pretty much everybody's like that or more and more are becoming like that, right? But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler, do not even eat with such people. Sounds very harsh, but it's what the what's called church discipline. And it's designed for brothers and sisters to reach out to a professing brother and sister or sister who's engaged in obvious sin and living a lifestyle that is inconsistent with the profession that they make. And so it's not designed to be harsh. It's designed to help, but it's designed to show somebody the seriousness and the error of their way. But the point here is it's not talking about people of the world. Isolation is not the answer, and isolation is not commended in Scripture. Bottom of page 20, in order to arrive at a biblically faithful answer to the question of our relationship to the world, we must first define what we mean by the world or worldliness. So what do we mean by that? For many, they've caught, if not been directly taught, that worldliness is whatever people of the world do. So whatever they do, we don't. So that's kind of the unspoken, caught definition of worldliness that many of us who grew up in church got. There's the stuff, if I want to avoid worldliness, then I need to see the stuff they do and don't do it. That's what, that's how you avoid worldliness. There's a number, there's a number of problems with that. Uh, I'll give you two. One is, If you just focus on what unbelievers, non-Christians do, and then you just say, I won't do that, therefore I won't be worldly, or to put it another way, therefore I'll be holy. 
if I look at what they do and I avoid doing that, then I'll be holy. Ah. <laughs> but see, that's a that's a, that's a an invalid, incomplete definition of holiness. Holiness is not just avoiding doing wrong stuff. This is why so many people in our churches are people who, yes, avoid doing the wrong stuff, but they think the wrong stuff, and they say the wrong stuff, and they think and they say the wrong stuff with the wrong attitude. You've met people like this. I mean, none of us are like this. We've known people. But people in churches who that believe in holiness have to really think this through because if you just have this working definition of worldliness that says, don't do what they do, I'll hang around with people who do what we do, you've still said nothing about the attitude we have, the heart we have, the words we speak. Some of the most harsh and censorious and difficult and frankly sinful people you'll ever meet are people who would never hang around with a worldling and do what they do. And because of that, it's one of the reasons people who have experienced church like that don't want any part of it. I've seen your types, and I've seen what you're like, and I've heard what you're like. It's hypocritical, and so I don't want any part of it. Just as an aside, that's one of the major obstacles that we have to overcome. I mean, when they find out you're a a Baptist or a quasi-Baptist, I say quasi because our name is Community Bible Church, but we're a Baptist church. And somebody asks me, what are we? I say, we're Baptist. But, you know, I always, I say straight up, I'm a Baptist. And then I wait for the, oh no. They won't just say, they won't say that out loud, but they're like, oh man, I've met people like you. So it is one of the obstacles we have to overcome is how people have behaved toward unbelievers. Thinking all the while that we're holy. When in fact, we're only holy in one compartment, things we do. But holiness is much more than just what we, the actions, it's the the attitude with which we carry out those actions, it's the words we speak, it's the things that capture our hearts. They see that. Just again, I'm keeping with that aside just for a moment. I have found that that can work to your advantage, believe it or not, that they have met crazy Baptists and that they have met hypocritical Baptists. It can work to your advantage. Because they then have an expectation about you that's very low. It's a very low bar. <laughs> it's real, I'm telling you, it's the truth. And it's then not that hard to clear their bar. And then, you know, if you're sort of normal and you're not censorious and you're not all, all of that and you can relate to life and you can talk life with them and you can actually give them some pearls of wisdom to help them with the stuff they're struggling with and all of that. They go, you know, eventually, wait, you're not like that dude that I met 10 years ago at that Baptist church. Thank you for saying so. So it can work to your advantage. But many people have gotten this wrong definition 
It's whatever the world does, so stay away from what the world does. Thereby, you will be holy. But the problem with that is, as I say, that only focuses on the actions, not the attitudes and, and all of that. The other thing it gets wrong is this, that sometimes the world gets it right. Why would the world get it right? Because they're living in the world God gave. And they're using God's stuff. So unbelievers still get married, for example. Unbelievers still get married, so they're using God's institution of of marriage. If we say worldliness is avoiding whatever the world does, then you would have to avoid marriage, wouldn't you? Because does the world engage in marriage? As a matter of fact, they engage in all kinds of things that we engage in because they came from the hand of the same God and we are creatures of the same God. So top of page 21, the working definition that many caught when they were growing up is whatever they do, we don't. However, this does not take into account that due to common grace. The world sometimes gets it right. You see that phrase, common grace. It's the grace of God given commonly, given to everybody. Special grace, saving grace, is the grace that we sing of and speak of most often. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. That's what we think of the grace that's given to us in bringing us to Christ. But the Bible teaches this broader concept of grace in which everybody benefits from the benevolence of God, the grace of God. And so that even though people are sinful in their entire being, in the way they think, in the way they, in the way they, uh, in the way they uh, talk, in the way they act, in their, in their intellect, in their volition, in their emotion, the Bible teaches we're completely sinful. All of the per, the entire person has been affected by sin. Even though that's true, hear this. Even unbelievers are not as even are not as bad as they could be. And the reason that they're not as bad as they could be is because God restrains the effects of sin through common grace. God is the one who has given marriage, the building block of society. God is the one who has given society. And there are societal restraints that keep people from being as bad as they could be. Now, you'll see pockets of God's world where those restraints have been lifted. And it's horrific to see what people can do. We don't, we don't have that quite yet, but you'll, you know, you'll see pockets of our country where you might have gang activity just, you know, and where it's just wanton lawlessness and the restraints are cast off and so people just do whatever. And it's, it's scary. But for the most part, people are still living and certainly in our country are still living with these common grace restraints upon them. So people are not as bad as they, they could be. They sometimes get it right because of common grace. And so I say in the middle of that top paragraph, some in the world still honor marriage. In doing so, yes, they're stealing from the capital of the biblical worldview, but nevertheless, they're doing the right thing. That is, they're doing the right thing, but not for the right reason. 
mean, marriage is God's institution and all of it was given for the glory of God. No unbeliever ever does it for the glory of God, but I'm still glad they do it. And it gives us a point of contact, a point of commonality. So worldliness cannot be defined simply as whatever the world does. So if that's what you've kind of been carrying around with you, worldliness is whatever the world does. If I avoid what the world does, therefore I'll be holy, then lose all of that. So what is worldliness? Here's a working definition that takes into account all the Bible teaches on this matter. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. Now, notice that definition. It focuses on values, not actions. That is what the person finds as worth, of worth, of value. What do they value? And then, not just everything they value, because they may, in God's common grace, value the right things. It's fallen values. So it's valuing the wrong things. Valuing things that are distortions of God's good world. So it's not focused on actions first. It's values that give rise to the actions. And it's not just actions in general. It's fallen values. And how do you see those values displayed? You see them expressed in culture. Culture is the amalgam, the totality of a given society's values at a given place and time. It's the totality of a society, the values of a society at a given place and time. So worldliness, now notice I say at a given place in time, worldliness may look different in 2018 America than it does in 2018 some other country because its culture is different. It expresses its fallen values differently. Further, worldliness in America in 2018 may be different than worldliness in America in 1950. So this definition doesn't confine worldliness to a particular time and place. But rather, any time and place has its own ways of expressing its fallen values in its culture. Through its entertainment, through its media, through its fashion, through all of these commonalities, this amalgam, this sum of things, of of values that most in the society engage in. So that's only one line, but it's chock full of, it's pregnant with meaning. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. So we have to be people who are able to exegete the culture. That is, analyze the culture. Be able to look at the culture, look at now where we live, our time and place. 
and say, what's worldliness look like now? What fallen values are being expressed now in our culture? And I just want you to take a minute to think about those. What fallen values are being expressed? So would you say, uh, would you agree that sensuality is a fallen value? And see, these, these things, what they always do is take something that God made as good and they distort it. So God has made the, God gave the body. The body was his idea. Sex was his idea. But the world distorts it. So that then becomes sensuality. And a particular culture expresses that value in particular ways. Now, if you want to be holy, you analyze that and you say, I ain't doing that. I'm not going to emulate the world in the way it expresses its value of sensuality. I'm not going to do that. You see, this goes beyond then just, I have to think about it. Uh, What about materialism? Just another example of a a value. Now, it takes something that God has made as good, namely matter, (laughs) material, and it distorts it. And the medium by which we own and we gain and purchase more material, more matter, is money. But money is not the problem. Materialism. Is the problem. And the Bible says that, doesn't it? I mean, in these words, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money is the root of all evil, the love of money. How does that express itself in our culture? I ain't doing that. If I'm a Christian, I'm avoiding that. I'm not going to make as my heroes the people who are pursuing wealth as their end goal. Those are not my heroes. You know, look, whatever whatever you believe about the president, he shouldn't be your hero because he was on a show that played the theme song Money, Money, Money. Right? That's a fallen value. So frivolity, I'll throw that one out as a, as a value in our, in our culture, people. Value, just being lighthearted about everything, even about sacred things. So it's appropriate to ask in our, in our culture, is nothing, is nothing sacred? I mean, look at what our churches do. Oh, Lord, spare us. Have mercy. You look at what our churches do. But what they're doing is importing worldly values into the church. And everything's, I mean, every you know, pastor has got to be a stand-up comedian. He's got to be able to entertain. And if you can't, then you're not going to be able to hold a crowd. And, of course, holding a crowd... 
is important because success is one of our values and we define success in a worldly way. So you can make a long list of these things and you should. And you should think about them as a Christian. If I'm not going to be worldly, then I got to know what worldliness is. It's that. And then I have to think about how is worldliness being displayed in my time and in my place so that I display something different. That's what being holy is. Being set apart. Literally, holy means set apart. Set apart from that. But I can't be properly set apart from it unless I've identified it. And you haven't identified it properly properly if you just say, avoid whatever the world does. So how can we relate? How can we relate to people in the world? On the one hand, we need to be set apart. That is, we're not going to emulate the values of, of the world. But on the other hand, we've got to have relationship with them. So I say a working definition is worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. With that definition, we can examine the culture of any time and place for its expressions in art, entertainment, media, and we can discern discern what those forms and expressions represent, whether common grace or fallen values, accept the former and reject the latter. You see, some of what the world's going to do is going to be common grace stuff that we do that overlap, and we can say yes, and then we can relate to the world on that basis, but not on the basis of fallen values. <clears throat> This approach, in turn, allows us to live in relation to unbelievers in the way that Jesus said. In John chapter 17, which is the night before Jesus died, John 17, and Jesus prays in John 17 uh, for 23 verses, I think. There are 26 verses in John 17, and I think the prayer is the first 23. And in that prayer... Uh, he prays for three sets of uh, categories of people. He prays first for himself. He prays for the apostles who he is with at that point. And then he prays for you and me. He prays for those who will believe their message. The night before Jesus died, he prayed for me, for you. And as he prays that prayer and he anticipates the next day and the crucifixion and the events that will follow and he's going to return to his father at the beginning of that prayer when he prays for himself, he says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. He knows that, in fact, he says, my hour has come. So now restore to me the glory that I had to you before the world. So he knows what's going to unfold now. And he's going to return to the Father and he's going to leave these now 11 guys. But then there are going to be people who believe their message going now for 2,000 years. And he prays for them. That would be us. And he says, in that prayer, they are in the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So I am leaving them in this sort of hostile territory 
They're in it. This is their physical location. My physical location is changing. I'm coming back to the Father. They are in the world. But importantly, they're not of the world. And Father, sanctify, that is, the word sanctify means make holy. Make them holy. Set them apart from the world. Do it by your truth. The contrast between your truth and that represents you and your character and what you desire and what the world has distorted and pursues. In the world, not of it. I say on page 21, there are four ways to relate to the world. Only one of those is correct. So, given Jesus' categories, they're in the world but not of the world. Here's one way to relate to the world. Be in it and of it. So physically you're in it. This is your location. This is, And you are also of it, meaning your values, your priorities, your allegiances are the same as the world. You're of it. You're in it and your values, allegiances, priorities are derived just like the world. Now, who is that? What category of people are both in and of the world? That would be unbelievers. They're in the world and of the world. In the world and of the world, again, with what I explained earlier, still having common grace values, still having the image of God in it and of it. Or here's another approach. You can have somebody who's not of the world, that is, their values, their priorities, their allegiances are not derived from the world. They're derived from the Lord based on truth. But they're also not, they're not of it, but they're not in it. Now, who would that be? Not in and also not of. That would be, you know, and I don't know personally too many of these these folks, but what I've heard about them and read about them, this would be your various kind of Amish people. Right? Christian people, not of, but they're also not in. So this is an isolationist approach. Or, sometimes it's not just, that, that would be the monastic lifestyle as well. So just go to a monastery, read the Bible and pray, but don't hang around with any worldlings. Amish, monastic, and sometimes fundamental Baptist. Not of, but also not in. So I don't have, I don't know any unbelievers. And if I, and if I run into an unbeliever and I start talking to an unbeliever and it turns out they really are an unbeliever, I, I will not know what to do with myself.
I mean, I've read that there are people like you, but now I've actually seen one in the flesh. I just can't believe how appalled I am at the things you say and the things you do. I mean, you, you act like a pagan. Well, go figure. Guess why? And this is one of the reasons, then, that we can't, we fail at reaching the people who need our message. Because we act shocked at the way they act. So I, I can't abide that. I can't be around that. I can't be around somebody like you. And yet, do you remember what Jesus did? Do you remember what he was accused of? He hangs around with the wrong crowd. He hangs around with drunkards and sinners. And who was he accused of that by? Who was making the accusation? It was the religious people who were not in and not of. Now, that's their false definition of not of because they had the attitude and they had all the, right? So who fits that category? Amish, monastics, and sometimes us. Here's another way. You can be not in and still be of. That is, you're not going to be with them. You're not going to hang around with them. But in your values, in your attitudes, in your priorities, in your heart, you are of the world. And you're emulating the world in those, in those ways. But you have this truncated definition of worldliness that says just don't do what they do. And so you're not in. You separate from it. You hang around with your own people. But you're worldly in your own relationships. And who is and who is this? You know this. You, this can be us. Like major danger for us, me. Uh, it's also just broad evangelicalism in our day. When I say broad evangelicalism as opposed to a fundamental Baptist. You got other conservative Christians who believe the Bible at least ostensibly. It's you know. When we, Everybody believes the Bible. It's actually like living the Bible. That's the hard part, right? And this would be this would be like the worldliness of the worldly church that we have today. See, it's not in in that. It's got its own thing. It's got its own gig going. But in the way it goes about its stuff, it borrows the values from the world. This is the way church is done today so if they've got entertainment we'll have entertainment we'll just have our own in church it's got the same values undergirding it frivolity nothing sacred you know if if you're going to be a pastor did you know this by the way if you're going to be a pastor in the evangelical church today and you're going to be and you're going to be successful you got to be buff did you know that I missed that memo. <laughs> I mean, just look at these dudes. I mean, and, and you, 
you wear, and you have to show that you're buff too, by the way. And you, you know, you just kind of strut around the, the stage. Anybody here ever use the word stage in my presence to refer to that thing? I always say it's a platform, it's not a stage. Because a stage is for entertainment, and we don't do entertainment. But this is what you this is what you have going. You can just go down the you can see the way the evangelical church operates, and it is borrowing its values from the world. Not in, but of. But there's only one correct way to do this. And that's to be in, but not of. So this is where we are. This is where the Lord has left us. This is our physical place. This is the place the ministry occurs. He has left us here on purpose. He has left us here to mingle with the people who need what we have. All the while keeping yourself unspotted from being polluted by the world, James chapter 1. In verse 27, but Jesus is saying it can be done. I prayed that it will be done. And I prayed this for the apostles, but I prayed this for all of those who will believe their message. And that would be us, that they'll be in it and they will carry out the work that I've given them to do in it. But all the while, they will not be of it. They will march to the beat of a different drummer. They will have different values and they will display different values. So they'll have things in common with those in the world, thank the Lord, because of common grace, because of the image of God in both of us. But as we go about pursuing those things that we have in common, we will do it in an uncommon way. As we go about pursuing the things we have in common, we'll do it in an uncommon, different way. We'll pursue family, but we'll do it differently. We'll pursue children and parenting, but we'll do it differently. We'll pursue employment, career, vocation, work. We'll pursue all of these God-given things just like you do, except we'll do it in an uncommon way. We'll do it differently. We can and we will in the weeks ahead Think about all of those areas that we have in common with unbelievers that we pursue in an uncommon way. So the question for this lesson was, how do we relate? That's how. We have a robust understanding of who it is we're going to with the gospel. We have a robust understanding of what we have in common with them. We have a solid definition of what worldliness is so that we can avoid real worldliness, not create a false worldliness, and and then inadvertently become worldly anyway. And so now we, I hope you're all clear, we got a lot in common with unbelievers. But what's uncommon is the way we go about those common things. So as a quick example, we've got a few minutes left. You know, when you're at work and you um, and you your boss is a real pain, um, what I just said is actually redundant. (laughs) 
I mean, pretty much that's the way work is, okay? You work and your boss is a pain, okay? Or work is a pain. But sometimes, you know, you just I've worked for good people. I've worked for good managers, and I've worked for really all oh, just difficult people. And you have too. Now, when you're in that difficult situation, what's the worldling going to do? How are they going to react to that? What kind of values are they going to bring to that? I mean, the values that they are going to bring are me first. It's about it's about me. No one's going to treat me. Is there such a thing as submission in their in their view, submitting to somebody else? So it's foreign to people, but it's something you believe if you believe the Bible. Bible actually talks about it a lot, placing yourself under the authority of someone else and willingly do so. First Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter two says you do that to the government in verse 13. In verse 18, it says you do it in employment situations. It uses slave masters situations. In first Peter chapter three, it says you do it in the home. You've got all these different relationships in which there's an authority submission relationship. And we, as Christians, willingly place ourselves under the authority of others. But here's the kicker. In 1 Peter chapter 2, when it talks about willingly placing yourself under the authority of your employer, it says this. It says, do this not only to those who are kind and considerate but also to those who are harsh. That's a quote. Oh, wow. You bring that to the office. You bring that to the plant. You're, you see, you're pursuing common things in an uncommon way. We're both working. We're both having to make a living. We both have a boss, but we're going to treat it differently. And so when there is the water cooler rebellion and everybody is plotting against the boss and talking about what an idiot the boss is you're going to handle that differently and people are going to see that they're going to see a difference in the way you the way you handle it same thing with your raising your children same thing with your marriage all of these things we have in common pursued in an uncommon way in turn they give us opportunities to talk about what makes you different. So why do you pursue it that way? Why are you, do, why are you not joining in the rebellion? How are you okay? And you're able to say, look, I'm not okay. I don't like what Joe did. But I'm okay because Joe's not the ultimate boss. This boss is not the ultimate boss. That's what I believe. And you get an opportunity to witness about this uncommon approach that you, that you take to it. Bottom of page 21, then. That means we see ourselves in common with them. So, starting next week, I do have another set of notes at the back, but we'll pass them out next week. So you don't have to worry about forgetting them. But we'll, we'll begin to look at then evangelism, the process of giving the gospel as being in relation with people and how 
we need to have an, go to those relationships with a number of equipped with a number of things, equipped with an understanding of the necessity of proximity and clear communication and so on, and also an understanding of a a clear way to give the gospel message as well. We'll look at both of those in the notes we'll pass out next week, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this session and the opportunity to consider these just vitally important matters. These are matters of eternity that we're thinking about. And so, Lord, help us to think clearly about ourselves, who we are in you, what you have given us to do and accomplish, in particular in being your representatives in your world, your ambassadors. Help us to think clearly about ourselves, who we are and what you've given us to do. But Lord, help us to think clearly about others as well. And help us to see others as you have. Help us to evaluate others as you do. Help us to to focus not on the things that we do not have in common, and there are many between believer and unbeliever, but help us to focus on those things, those points of contact that we have in common because we are made in your image, because we share the same, same world that has come to us from the hand of the one and only God. Lord, over these next few weeks, help us then to retrain our thinking so that we see people and the relationships we have with those people that way. So that now we can intentionally focus upon pursuing these common objectives, but remembering that we do it in an uncommon way, in in values that have been transformed, in allegiances that are now different, in purposes that are completely, completely radically changed. Help us to begin to do that even this week. Minimum, help us to to consider it and think about how it applies to the relationships we have and the spheres that you've given us at work and at home and at school and our neighborhoods so that we can be effective evangelists for you. Grant us safety, Lord, we ask. Bring us back together this Lord's Day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.